4, District 6. Stage first shooting. Skimmer Way near Lakeland, Charles 478, Tango. Thank you for joining us on Inside EMS. Now the always entertaining Chris Ceballero and the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. Well, ladies and gentlemen, here we go with Inside EMS. I'm your host, Chris Subalera, and it's our weekly show where we come and bring you the best things that are going on inside EMS. And with me always is the guy, this is the only guy that Chuck Norris will send a Christmas card to, my friend Kelly Grayson. Kelly, how are you, sir? That is true. I'm, I'm fine. A little known fact, when, when Chuck Norris goes to bed at night, he wears Kelly Grayson pajamas. True story. You, you know what? I can't even get a pair of those pajamas. <laughs> I can't fit in them anymore, so, so it's a lot. Kelly once told me there's three tough people in the world, and the other two send me Christmas cards, so Chuck Norris must be one of them. <laughs> That's right. So uh, um, your, your kidney stone, it was what, the, the size of a basketball? Uh, did you ever pass it? I don't know that it's the size of a, a basketball, but right now it's the size of a Fiat. I think one of them small Fiats, you know? But, you know, we joke. We joked about it because uh, it was something that should go pretty easy. I did have some lithotripsy last week, and they made the determination that the stone is too big and too hard to break up, and I probably need more surgery to get it taken out. So uh, I'm not a happy camper right now. And this edition of Inside EMS is coming to you by our sponsors, Percocet. So thank you for that very much. We appreciate that. <laughs> so, Kelly, it's about time. Uh, let's go ahead and do some in the news. Uh, hit them with their first news story. Well, in, in case you've been hiding in the past two weeks, it's all Ebola all the time now. The hysteria has hit hit full force, and this is, I'm expecting to see the memes uh, appear on, on social media anytime now about the Ebola shark NATO, because stuff's about to get real up in here. We've got, a uh, in addition to the patient who was initially seen and sent home, from a Presbyterian Hospital in Dallas uh, because of some epic miscommunication. Now we have a journalist uh, who just arrived at a Nebraska hospital and is in a containment unit where he contracted out Ebola uh, working in Liberia. It's the fifth American to come back to the U.S. for treatment. He's in a hospital in Omaha right now, Ashoka Mukpo. I believe his name is, uh, uh, arrived by ambulance at the Nebraska Medical Center, and he's on in a containment unit. Believes he may have contracted the disease while um, cleaning up after a uh, disinfecting after a patient who had died from Ebola. I believe what the what the story is, but uh, don't know of his condition now. Boy, the the hysteria is widespread. How many emails have you sent out concerning Ebola and and infection control and decontamination? Man, more than I care to count right now. And I got to tell you, I mean, when when the first patients came to the United States and they were brought down to Georgia, you know, I sent out a thing to my organization and I said, we really have to start preparing for this. And in no short term was uh, it kind of laughed at. And now on Wednesday, we're working a full Ebola plan as if someone walked into our ER and then we're going to do one as if someone was called and we have to deal with them from EMS. How are we going to deal with that? And this is just mm-hmm. a, a couple short months, Kelly. i got to tell you, this this scares me a little bit because this is a disease. You know, you, did you see Planet of the Apes? Did you see what happened in that movie, Planet of the Apes? This is kind of that stuff right here now. And may not be any apes running around that could take over, but I'm a little worried about my providers. I'm a little worried about the healthcare professionals at, at our hospitals. And I think we all now, with this event that happened in Dallas... And, and Ebola's been going on. I mean, so how do these people show up at the hospital with these flu-like symptoms and they're sent home without the thought of saying, this guy could have Ebola? They asked him if he traveled, and the guy said yes, and they still sent him home. Well, you know, 
to, to be quite honest, if I were in Liberia or, or uh, any of the Western Africa countries where, where the Ebola is, is currently rampant and I contracted, you know, and I, I felt like I may have been exposed to the disease, I can't tell you that I wouldn't hop on a plane and get my butt right home. I don't want to. I want first world medical care <laughs> in the United States. Uh, I don't want um, the best hospital in Liberia, which is is uh, damning with faint praise. Uh, so I can't really blame the guy from coming uh, for coming home. But the the hysteria is is pretty widespread now. Uh, I feel sometimes like the, uh, the the guy at the end of Animal House when they're all rioting after the parade. Nobody panic. All is well. <laughs> And, That's uh, right. That was Kevin Bacon. <laughs> yeah, Kevin Bacon. All is well. Nobody panic. The CDC does uh, has released an EMS checklist for detecting and managing Ebola, and it's pretty much it's straightforward. Body, you know, standard precautions and 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 good uh, uh, decontamination, like we should normally uh, normally do after every single call. We just need to be more observant and stringent of it, and and recognize the signs of uh, Ebola, and uh, and uh, recognize the symptomatology, uh, and and take appropriate precautions. You know, this reminds me of that. You remember after 9/11, the the big uh, anthrax scare. Uh, how many how many suspicious envelopes of white powder we dealt with in the, in the weeks following that? Uh, Ebola is kind of uh, running that course, it would seem. Yeah, let me ask you a question. I mean, it's a good thing that you brought up about anthrax and the white powder, because uh, we were getting rid of those things left and right. At least that's what we were telling mm-hmm. the DEA. At least that's what we were telling the DEA. But l- let me mm-hmm. ask you this: So you made the comment of, and I think it warrants a little bit of a discussion. Would you really get on a plane and come back to the United States knowing? That you could be the typhoid Mary of our time? I would probably, mm, I don't know that I would, but if it's a choice of uh, getting medical care in a third world hospital versus getting medical care in the United States, I would probably try to find a seat in the back of the plane and uh, keep my my business to myself and, and I don't know, you know. But I, I sure wouldn't want to to, to stay in Liberia and, and, be, uh, and run that risk. I would die. You know, the the thing is, is is the the biggest problem with with Ebola is the dehydration and fluid loss. You know, from the the vomiting and the diarrhea. And you think about it now, the the current strain of Ebola is so deadly, the mortality rate is is uh, is well up there. But for all Ebola strains, I think the the mortality rate is what uh, anywhere from ten to to twenty or thirty percent. You think about it. You know, in outside of industrialized countries, the mortality rate for just diarrhea is one in nine. You got a you got a well over a ten percent mortality rate from just diarrhea. It doesn't have to be a bowl. Let me throw this into the cookie, into the uh, works okay. of of our discussion. If you're like me, you may have fear. How many of these now, these ISIS guys that are talking about death to Americans, go out into Liberia? and uh, that have U.S. passports or that have Canadian passports contract the disease just to bring it back to the United States. Like, like little uh, not-so-smart bombs, biological bombs. Yeah, it's, it's possible. You know, it's kind of Tom Clancy's turning out to be a pretty prescient when he wrote Rainbow Six. You know, that was part of the plot as they, they weaponized Ebola and uh, unleashed biohazard war on the, on the U.S., and some of the methods of transmission, you know, and potential effects, bringing it over here with uh, international air travel, how easily it can spread. 
pretty pretty right on the money. You know, it almost makes you makes you lean toward the conspiracy theorists, but uh, but not enough. Those guys are a little wild eyed for my taste. In any case, people need to uh, check out those CDC guidelines, uh, the EMS checklist for detecting and managing Ebola, and it's a uh, pretty straightforward uh, rules to follow. And, and if you do so, you should be okay. Kelly, my story goes, I got to tell you, I was so disturbed when I heard this story, and I just knew that I had to talk about it. Indiana Menick charged with sexual assault of a disabled woman. And this really hurt my heart. It really hurt my soul as a, as a pre-hospital provider. I mean, when we do the things that we do, we gain the trust of our, of our community. We gain the trust of the people that pick up and down 911. And now we go to Wabash, Indiana, and this story is going back to the 4th of October, where a paramedic was in the back of the ambulance with a disabled woman she wasn't able to communicate verbally uh, there was a partner in the front a female partner in front who was driving and the accusation is and he's being accused of sexually assaulting this woman in the back of the ambulance when she got back to her residence she was able to write what happened to her and i gotta tell you man this was just this was just a horrible story and and again i go to you and i say you know we got to get the trust of the community to walk into their homes to develop a rapport in a short amount of time deliver the highest quality of patient care to let them know that we're going to be there to take care of them and we constantly hear about these medics who are stealing their drugs who are stealing their money who are sexually assaulting them and i gotta tell you it just makes me sick that i'm part of this a group of people that have this uh you know this mentality that is souring the apples for everybody yeah, and, you know, but the thing is, is we, we see episodes, uh, incidents like this of medics stealing drugs and, and medics sexually assaulting minors or, or intoxicated females in the back of the rig, or in this case, this disabled woman, and, and you think that that thing is more prevalent than it is because those are the kind of things that get reported. Uh, we, we see this more often because those because the uneventful transports where the medic did his job are not newsworthy. So this is still an anomaly. This is not commonplace anymore. We just hear about it more often because we have a 24-hour news cycle now. But having said that, it, you know, as a profession, it's, it's incumbent upon us to police our own. And once this guy has had his due process uh, and, it's, and his case has been determined, if he is indeed found guilty by a jury of his peers, he needs to go to jail. He needs to go to jail for a long, long time where he can get molested by bigger and stronger people than him in jail. Uh, I don't, you know, I, I, I wouldn't condone that, but that's what happens in prisons. And, uh, you know, I, I, I have it, uh, find it very difficult to work up a whole lot of sympathy for a sexual, uh, a sexual predator. And yeah. that's what he is. This is not a man. This is not a human being. If he actually did this, he is a sexual predator. And I think that one of the things, though, that we have to look at is the sense of you're talking about, and I don't know that I can accept your explanation to say we're a 20, we have a 24-hour news cycle. We're just hearing about this more. We didn't hear about it before. You know, but in the related articles, if you look at the, if you look at the article on EMS1 that was dated October 4th, in the related articles, it talks about trial underway for an accused medic of sexual assault. Connecticut medic is prison time for sexual assault. Kentucky EMS director resigns amid sexual harassment lawsuits. How come we're not hearing this from our police brethren? How come we're not hearing this from our fire brethren? So, I 
I really think that are we not taken seriously as EMS providers, as healthcare professionals? Are we called ambulance drivers? You know, we say that we want the respect, but I don't see these things happening in other public safety venues. Well, I think you could you could find uh, evidences where police uh, police officers and firefighters and and, and such uh, are guilty of such acts. You know, keep in mind that, that firefighters, unless they are in a transport role, are, are not commonly interacting with the public uh, to the degree that police officers and, and pure EMS uh, providers are doing. And and when they're in that transport role, um, you know, they're referred to as medics. So it's probably uh, it's. You know, there, there's probably a, uh, our fair share of those uh, of those offenders who are members of the fire service. This, but that's not to point fingers at any other public safety profession. I just think we see a lot more of it, uh, or we hear a lot more of it than than there actually is, because that's all we hear about. Yeah, one of the things that I want to ask you guys that are out there, you know, Kelly says that we got to police our own. How do we go about doing that? And we'd really like to hear your comments. So go ahead and comment on, on the comments section below. Uh, go ahead and send us an email at uh, the show at ems1.com and tell us how we do that because I would really like to share uh, those uh, thoughts with the rest of the listeners. I guess that's in the news for this week. Yeah, so, that's it. Well, one of the things that I wanted to do before we transition to the clinical issue and uh, we always have a clinical issue to talk about. We've gotten, Kelly, we've gotten really great response from our tips of the week from Sean Eddy. And uh, Sean has been uh, giving great tips through Money Smart Medics. And if you haven't had the opportunity to check out Money Smart Medics, go ahead and do that. Uh, we support that process. And, and I've, trying to been, I've been trying to learn a little bit about Sean's methodology so I can share with some of the uh, paramedics and EMTs that uh, we have in our facility. And i got to tell you, just this weekend, my 26-year-old son was in here visiting, and he was having a little bit of money problems. And I sat him down with some of Sean's uh, ideas and said, now look at what this guy's done and kind of picked those up. But here's the tip of the week from Sean Eddy, Money Smart Medics. Eliminate the stress of the holidays and every other major annual expense that comes your way by planning. Now, one of the things that we always do is it seems, Kelly, that we know that Christmas is coming up. Now, we could probably sit there and put Christmas in a matter of days now uh, of preparing for that. But we do this every year. We know that Christmas comes every year. And it seems that we jump into all that, you know, overtime and try to plan the, the, the Christmas for our family's uh, presents and so on and so forth. But if we know we're spending $1,000 a year or 2000 dollars a year or whatever that is why don't we take a little bit of chunk of that each pay period and set it away somewhere so then this way when the holidays come up we're able to pull that money out uh, rather than have to work all that overtime and even if we started to work that overtime maybe have a little bit extra but let's start planning throughout the year let's set that money aside and let's have good holidays for our families sean puts it in in excellent perspective you know uh, failing to plan is planning to fail uh, and we always seem to to spend more money uh, and, and spend it less wisely when we don't have a strategic plan in place. Uh, I know that whenever I go to the grocery store without a list, I spend way more money and buy a lot more food that's, that's not healthy for me um, because uh, I'm, I'm the consummate impulse shopper. I'll buy all sorts of stuff uh, that wasn't on the initial list. If I have a plan before I go spend, uh, I generally spend my money uh, more effectively. You know, and there, there was a, uh, Sean's, uh, Sean's first article just uh, showed up in EMS World magazine, uh, and there were some, some comments on social media about it uh, that they couldn't believe that EMS World would 
publish such a thing without also uh, advocating higher EMS uh, wages, uh, higher wages uh, nationwide for EMS, making some kind of public campaign about it, which I, I don't really think is fair. I, I think that the, the strategies that he are that he is uh, advocating uh, are wise money manage, management strategies for anyone. Um, and uh, especially useful to those of us in EMS, and you know, it's not necessarily a, a trade journal's job to uh, to advocate um, for, or to to do public advocacy uh, for better you know better wages. Uh, we got other avenues to pursue that. Let's go ahead and transition to our clinical issue. And every week we do have a great clinical issue. And, you know, there was an article that came out, Kelly, and, uh, you know, I talked to you about it on October 2nd. And it was a medic that was suspected of drug thefts resigns before the investigation. And I think that regardless of where you've been in your EMS career, there have been times in your experience that someone has tampered with the narcotics that someone has failed to secure their narcotics, Mm -hmm. that people have lost their narcotics. And I got to tell you, there was one time when I was working for a system where we had some challenges securing our narcotics. And our medical director said, how will you like it if I take those narcotics away from you? Now, we have to understand that we are operating under a medical director's license. We are operating under a medical director's DEA license. And this is their livelihood. This is how they yeah. feed their families. I, and if I, we're, was to, I was about to say that's that's the one way we're operating under their license with his with his DEA license, not his actual medical license. But But one of the things that we have to look at is the well we pra- no, I mean we practice medicine. We practice medicine as EMS providers based on his medical license. He gives us the empowerment to go out into the homes as if we were part of that medical director's practice to practice the medicine that we do. And the given it's delegated practice, but it's but his his license is not really at risk for our screw-ups the legal doctrine being you know i'm not my brother's keeper but if, if we don't if we don't have adequate safeguards on our narcs uh yeah his his dea uh, uh prescribing licenses is at risk and uh in every so that's, contract that's the of the rule in every contract you're going to find you're going to find an indemnification clause that says by the agency that they're going to indemnify that medical director in the case of malpractice in the case of but anyway let's go ahead and and digress you know back we digress from forgetting off the subject where we were but get off tangent back on the subject exactly thank you for playing that that was put in pure cajun right there folks so but let me say this you know i don't know that we really take this this charge with as much responsibility as we need to you know again one of the things that i asked my medical director is why do you put your medical license why do you put your dea license on the line for us uh, as ems providers and i want to hear the reason they do that and it's my job as a chief of ems now to ensure that when he puts his head down at two o'clock in the morning that he can sleep and know that his livelihood isn't going to be affected by people who are uh, irresponsible with his narcotics and you know in this article where we talk about a medic is suspected of drug thefts resigns before investigation we have these going on in the systems right now and i think we there really has to be an overhaul of how we deal with narcotics from the sense of securing from the sense of ensuring we're not we're not taking them home at the end of our shifts to the sense of even giving narcotics when they need to be given um i think this is a big problem in our career field 
I, I think uh, I think it is unconscionable that this guy was allowed to resign without further investigating. Um, you know, I, I've been in in that sort of situation, not personally, but uh, my uh, one of my first uh, employers in EMS found one of their senior medics, uh, his partner found him on the floor of the bathroom with a uh, needle and half filled syringe of morphine still in his arm. He was shooting up his own drugs and replacing them with saline. And they told him to, uh, uh, they gave him a choice. We won't prosecute if you get off the streets. So they gave him a job in dispatch and let him keep his job. And he dispatched for several years, uh, let his, his paramedic cert lapse. And then, you know, three, three years, four years after the fact, he applied as a lapsed paramedic, retook his national registry exam and was back on the street with another agency. You know, and that's just, he, he paid no price uh, uh, for his crime, uh, and you have an admitted uh, and possibly even uh, still on drug user back on the streets. There's something to be said for self-reporting. I believe that if a, if a medic or an EMT has a substance abuse problem, uh, view our people as our most precious resource. That we owe it to them to to um, help them with with their substance abuse problems if they come to us for help so there should be an uh, employee assistance program and there should be some type some type of non-criminal action taken if the medic self-reports if he comes to you and says chris you know i got a problem with uh i got a problem with substance abuse and and uh i'm i'm hooked on uh on you know uh, norco or percocet and uh the other day, I, I uh, took some leftover morphine and took it home with me. I need help. You know, that guy probably doesn't need to be in the criminal justice system. But if someone is caught before he self-reports, they catch him taking drugs out of the safe, this medic was, was caught, he needs to be put in jail and prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. And not only that, we need to make the prosecution public as a public way of saying, this is what we do to people who break the law. I have no sympathy whatsoever for someone who gets caught with their hand in the cookie jar and is only repentant because they got caught. Yeah, I have to agree with you, and I think that's a really great point to bring up. But one of the things that I want to ask you is, you know, we think about this case that that's spurring our discussion here you know this is coming out of utah and it mm-hmm. seems that you know we, we just talked about it in the news where we talked about the sexual assaults and you were saying to me that the prevalence of uh the news stories may not be we're just hearing more about them and that the you know, medic is a term that's used regardless of your fire-based hospital-based so on and so forth But here what we have is we have a fire department that decided to allow the person to resign rather than bring the charges to the police department. Is this one of those blue flu things where we're just trying to cover up for our own and we're not really looking at the the aspect of turning this person in so we don't give the uh, the black eye to the fire service? I don't don't know that it's that, that, you know, the... Uh, the police, it's the thin blue line, but uh, I, I don't know that, that it's that. I, I think it would be more, I would more uh, likely to attribute it to uh, some misguided sense of damage control and uh, and spin in public relations. They just don't want it out. Uh, not to necessarily give a, a black eye to the fire service in general, but just to, to uh, they don't want the, the public's trust undermined at all. 
and they think it's it's uh, it's a better better to try to, to hide it than it is to own up to it uh, and say okay we have a problem here and we're addressing it and this is how we're doing it. Uh, me, if it were if it were my community and, and uh, fire department or, or EMS or whoever uh, came out and said, hey, we've got a uh, we had a medic here stealing drugs um, and we have fired him and we're prosecuting him to the fullest extent of the law um, and we've enacted safeguards to make sure this is not possible in the future, um, I'd have to tip my hat to uh, to the uh, agency that, that did that sort of thing. I think there's something, uh, some respect to be uh, to be given for um, manning up uh, and, and uh, taking the uh, taking the public hit for it as it were uh, I'd have less respect for you if you did what they did and, and uh, um, try to sweep it under the rug and keep it quiet uh, yeah. those, those sorts of secrets have a way of blowing up in your face and being worse the damage control is, uh, is worse than admitting to it publicly in the first place so I think one of the things that gives me pause with this, though, is, and I really think about it, let's go beyond the fact of, of stealing. You know, I was once involved with an organization where once we finished the, the clinical investigation, we found out that one of our employees had stolen over 10,000 milligrams of morphine. But anyway, let's get away from that morphine thing. And I want to go back to the subject of, do we have a reverence when it comes to our securing of our narcotics or keeping our narcotics safe or even using them when we need to use them one of the things that we put in place at, at our service was we were f we were having a challenge with folks that were trying that weren't secure in their narcotics they weren't signing them in they weren't signing them out or they were signing them in and out at the same time and our medical director finally came up and said look if this is going to be the case and if people are going to be irresponsible with my narcotics then the first time that happens I want them to get a written I want them to be suspended for a shift second time it happens I want them to get a final written I want them to be, be suspended for a rotation which is three shifts finally if it happens a third time I want them terminated they won't work under my medical license anymore so are we really in a place where we just don't take this seriously enough uh. I think it's going to depend on the agency. I work for a couple of large agencies that that were pretty cavalier about the drugs. As a matter of fact, there you know, DEA requires that that uh, controlled substances be behind two locks, uh, behind two locked doors, and in a lock a locked cabinet uh, with limited access, and you know, and so on and so forth. But and and many people interpret that to be the the front door of the station and the supply closet that it's in. They were not quite that cavalier about it. They actually had a an old style mailbox uh, on a pedestal, and every medic had his own narc box. So I didn't have to transfer narcotic pouches uh, to my relief. Um, I would leave at the end of the day uh, and um, put my narcs in the in the box and and go on about my business and come check them out when I came back to work. And no one, there was no video camera surveillance. There was. There was nothing to prevent me from stealing all the narcs and and fudging it for uh, and and fudging um, the uh, the usage reports and stuff along the way, um, and uh, you know the the security was really really lacking. This was a CAS accredited uh, accredited uh, uh, major EMS system, 
Now, our current system is, is not like that, but even then, uh, Acadian's uh, narcotic security is pretty stringent, uh, and we we actually hand off a, a pouch to our relief at the end of every shift, and, and we have we check it against uh, against what was used and, and, um, and document a run number that it was used on and, and so on and so forth. And when you hand off medics to another, uh, hand off narcs to another medic, you, you know, you know exactly what's in the pouch. But even so, uh, people can, people uh, will do everything they can to circumvent that. We have uh, new containers with little marbles in them now because uh, we've had medics in, in some of our areas that, that actually were able to siphon the drugs out of, out of the container. And not long ago, we had um, someone rip some uh, a narcotic uh, lockbox off the wall and steal all the drugs in it. And, and what's distressing is, is that that by definition probably has to be a former employee or a current employee. Um, but uh, um, like many such things, sometimes we wind up closing the barn door after the uh, after the livestock escapes. So now uh, even more stringent uh, 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 safeguards are in place. So you, you really can't go into a supply closet around here now without a, a video camera on you, which is a good thing. So. Depends on the agency, you know. I think uh, my current employer is is realizing that they, they thought their their safeguards were pretty stringent, but they weren't stringent enough and took steps to it. And the other one, they were still locking up narcotics uh, for days or weeks on end with with no uh, double check behind a wooden door. Um, and who knows uh, what was actually in those files? Might have, you know, uh, might have been um, uh, normal sailing for all I know, for as, as well as, as some of them worked. Yeah, I got to tell you, man, I've seen some pretty ingenious ways that mm-hmm. uh, morphine has been siphoned from the bottles, and you know, that actually there was one individual, and I, we never caught who it was, that was actually drilling with the syringe through the plastic top. And then just kind of took some of those shavings and put them back in the hole. So when you popped yep. the top, you were able to see the hole from the bottom, but you couldn't tell that there was a hole put through it on the top. And, and uh, you know, it's just crazy that uh, people have all that time. It's almost like yep. prison sometimes, isn't it? When we sit in those ambulances for 12 hours a day and we think about how can we get over idle, on our narcotics. Idle hands of the devil's workshop. That's right. Um, so containers now that, that kind of prevent that sort of thing, but I'm sure that as uh, someone ingenious and sufficiently motivated can come up with a way to, to defeat our tamper-proof containers as well. So. It's, it's, it's all these things that just continue to take a punch in the face of uh, honest EMS providers that uh, believe in what yep. we do, and uh, it's those folks that uh, are doing the wrong things that are uh, you know giving us those yep. black eyes. But Kelly, it sounds like we got a clinical issue. It's right. We we do, and and you know this this is not limited to EMS. Um, healthcare providers in general uh, have much higher substance abuse um, rates than than the general population. So it's not just us. We have the the opportunity and, and easy access to meds and a very high stress environment, and we're no we're no uh, more immune to uh, evils of addiction than than anybody else. But as always, we'd like to hear your thoughts on the matter. Uh, tell us what you think should have been done uh, to a medic uh, caught stealing drugs. Uh, should he have been fired? Should he get a second chance? Should he be prosecuted? Give us your thoughts at the show at ms1.com. 
Well, now it's time to go ahead and get to our guest table, and Kelly Grayson has to go ahead and leave us, so I'm going to go ahead and fly solo on this. And, you know, I'm really excited to kind of talk about our next guest, and we've kind of worked closely together in the past, and, you know, just a really great guy and has so much knowledge about EMS and really the future of EMS, and that's going to be Mike Tagman. And Mike Tagman is the general manager of American Medical Response in Ventura County, Gold Coast Ambulance. He's also uh, has ties with the Institute of Healthcare Improvement, and he's a certified improvement advisor with them. So uh, if you kind of need some assistance, he's the guy to call. And I want to bring him in here now. Mike Tegman, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing great, Chris. It's uh, great to chat with you. You know, it's always fun to chat with you. And every time we talk, I always learn a little bit more about uh, things and EMS. And we've kind of worked on a couple of things together uh, in the in the past. And you, got, you had come in as a consultant uh, to MedStar when I was down there in Fort Worth, Texas. And I got to tell you, in just the short amount of time that we've had the opportunity to visit, uh, your knowledge, your experience, your view of things really is kind of different. It's refreshing. And it really kind of helped a system that was in need of some help. And uh, I was really happy to have to, uh, you know, be part of that process with you. You are way too kind, my friend. You know, Mike, one of the things that I wanted to bring to you is, you know, we talk a lot about uh, here on Inside EMS about what the future of EMS looks like. And one of the one of the projects that you have is taking EMS into the future. And there's several parts to that concept that you've kind of uh, written about. So first off, when we think about the transformation of EMS and where EMS is going, could you give us a little feel of what you think the future of EMS is going to look like? Absolutely. And I, I do have a bias that I should reveal up front. Um, and I think Peter Drucker is the one who said it. He said, the best way to predict the future is to create it. So my bias is that uh, we should be intentionally creating our future. And uh, probably one of the things that inspired me to, to kind of shift gears back about 10 years ago uh, was listening to a presentation by Don Berwick, who was the, the uh, original founder and CEO of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. And his keynote speeches or, or something at the national conference where uh, people line up like they were going to a Grateful Dead concert. And uh, he got on stage and he, uh, he basically said, every hospital and healthcare system in America claims to be patient-centered. And he says in their mission statements, it's on their walls. And he said, I'm here to tell you it is a load of crap. It is a lie. It is not true. And as the, the only EMS guy in the audience, I was a little bit shocked and uh, started to think about how, how his observation uh, applied to the EMS world and how we do a whole bunch of things that are really not patient-centered. Um, we, you know, when we measure airway compliance, we measure it based on whether you can tube or not. Um, there's, a, there's just a number of things we do that when you stand back and look at it um, are more for the provider, more for the system, and not as much about patients as we'd like to think. You know, that, that brings up a really great point because you hear a lot in our career field, the, you know, the EMS providers that are out there, they're going to say that it's all about the money. They're going to say that it's not about the patient care. So it's kind of interesting that you bring that up. So now as we think about our future and how we go forward, how do we now get back to really putting the patient back into patient care? I, I think there are a number of ways. And I think if we truly start with the patient's interest at the center, you know, think about why people call 911. It's either because something bad happened, there was a car crash, or somebody got shot or stabbed. Can't wake somebody up. If it's the patient themselves calling, it's because they have pain, they can't breathe, or they're feeling really sick. Or the last category is, you know, somebody's 
um, hearing voices that are encouraging them to put their pet bunny in the microwave, um, the behavioral emergencies. So if we, if we start by saying, you know, what are the reasons, not necessarily the clinical reasons, but the patient perspective reasons why they're calling us for help and, and making sure that we address those things, um, you know, in the, and the two easy places to start are um, if people are suffering, um, we should take steps to reduce their suffering. And if they're at risk of dying in the near future, we should do everything we possibly can to make sure that they don't die. And if we, if we begin with those two perspectives, looking at it from the patient's viewpoint, um, I, I think we'll make a whole lot better decisions. You know, I think that's one of the things. I mean, I, I kind of have to chuckle when you say that, but it's very, very simple that if we look at patient care from the patient's viewpoint, we may make different decisions. And, you know, it really goes back to that foundation, Mike, of saying treat our patients like we'd want our family members treated. How can we keep moving away from that? We've been hearing that for years. We're just not making up that up now. How do we get back to that concept? As, as an EMS provider, why do we forget that? You've been saying get back to it. You know, the reality is, you know, this is my 40th year in this business. I'm not sure we've ever been there. Um, I'm not sure it's a place to get back to. I think it's a place to move to. Um, I was uh, I was at a, a meeting uh, last Friday. I was teaching a class, uh, 55 or so um, EMTs and paramedics who've moved into leadership positions. And I asked them the question, when you've got a patient with a long bone fracture, busted femur, busted hip, busted tibia, tibia, something like that. Um, what is the absolute most important thing from the patient's perspective? And the cumulative amount of EMS years in this room were well, well over a thousand years of EMS experience in the room. And not a single person knew the answer. Nobody did. They guessed pain. They guessed, is it going to cost me too much? They guests, am I going to be able to walk again, they, all those kinds of things, and none of those are what patients tell you. There was a group in Sarasota, Florida that interviewed 100 consecutive long bone fracture patients with two-hour-long open-ended interviews. This was Dave Harwood's group um, at the Sarasota Fire Department uh, several years ago, and they asked him that question. And the answer to the question is, how you move me from the position you find me in? You think about it, when somebody bust a long bone, they self-split. Right. And their suffering usually happens most intensely when we get there. So so if you know if you learn the answer to the question because you've actually listened to your patients, you change the protocols. So based on that, we should be, you know, starting lines and giving people analgesic medication and letting the medication kick in so that it's working before we start splitting and packaging people. As I, as I travel around the country, very few EMS systems actually do that. Right. But from the patient's perspective, it's the right thing to do. Yeah, I got to tell you, with my experience with that, Mike, it's funny that you said that because I was thinking, you know, don't move them until they're ready is what I was thinking kind of as you were telling that story because I had a old, uh, an old retired physician and I said, okay, so we're going to move you from the floor and I'm going to put you on that board. And he grabbed me by my shirt and he said, not before you give me morphine. 
you are going to give me pain medicine <laughs> before you even think of moving me. And I looked at him. I was like, you know what? You were, you were right. You were absolutely right as I should minimize that pain before I move you. So that was really an interesting uh, education for me, but uh, something I didn't think about in the past. So, you know, I, I think there's a lot of great opportunities. And when we talk about mobile integrated healthcare, and we talk about community paramedicine, when we talk about that we're in the driver's seat, and I've said this before, we're a career field that's not even 50 years old yet. And there's so much pioneering that's left to do that we can really write the history that when people look back on the on the 50 years, uh, uh, you know, that they're looking back on, hopefully we've done some great things. But with that, you know, your, your background in performance improvement, your background with uh, quality, your background with education, what do we have to do to get the EMS provider of tomorrow ready f- educationally for the responsibilities they're going to have? You know, when you're... It's a superb question, Chris. And when you stand back and you look at the needs that patients and communities have and the kinds of things that really help, um, a whole lot of the, the, the perspective is really in the domain of public health and social work. When you, when you take a look at congestive heart failure readmission rates or asthma self-management support or diabetes self-management support, Many of the things that patients need traditionally fit in the realm of uh, the public health worker or the social worker or the case manager. So expanding our mental model from that of being, you know, lifesavers and suffering preventers, which will always be a core part of our mission, to include how do we change systems and facilitate people being able to take better care of themselves or avoid injury or illness completely in the first place. So in that, in that framework, adding some of those skills and those perspectives um, to the education and to the expectation and to the protocols and systems, I, I think is, is key. And there's, I've, I've got a couple of you know, pretty specific examples that might help. So let's, let's take asthma, for example. Um, so asthma, whether it's in the adolescent or the adult population, poorly managed asthma has people suffering a lot at, at risk for death, although the death rate is not high associated with asthma, but uh, great risk for repeated emergency department visits, repeated hospitalizations. And when uh, you take a look at the, the data, there are a couple of research studies that show up to 90% of people with asthma don't know how to use their inhalers correctly. And I can show you the difference between a maintenance inhaler and a rescue inhaler and how to use those differently and how to coach people in, a, in about three minutes. So if, if EMTs and paramedics, while they're transporting asthma patients after they've given them a breathing treatment, after they've opened up their airways so that they're breathing more comfortably, would just spend a couple of minutes teaching people how to use the medications that they've already been prescribed and then uh, talking to them about their living situation. If they've you know, got a favorite uncle who is always smoking his bong in the living room and that the, the smoke from that causes airway irritation or a favorite or a mother that uses way too much perfume, asking Uncle Eddie to smoke his bong in the backyard and asking mom to, to not use perfume or to put it on after she's left the house are, are the kinds of things that can make a huge difference for folks. And there are a number of situations where EMS providers, by helping in that domain, have been able to reduce emergency department visits by 60, 70, uh, 75% in people with chronic asthma. 
Yeah, I got to tell you, I mean, when we think about those things, they're very, very simple. And, you know, even here, we've reduced the, the asthma rate. If I, I think about it really quick, we reduced our uh, high utilizer rate by 63%. And I think those with respiratory uh, uh, challenges, we've seen a decrease in almost 40-something percent of those uh, specific uh, comorbidities. And it really just comes down. There was one lady that we were dealing with. Her cat kept spraying around the house. And it was very simply of, of getting her some resources to help get her cat fixed that now she's now going outside and she's able to breathe a lot better but no one is really you know no one is really taking those steps to say how does she wind up breathing better by getting rid of a lot of those antigens that are going on and i think that's a really great point so mike oh, that's 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 exciting i want to learn more about that chris yeah i'm more than happy to share that with you and and uh, hopefully we'll be uh, putting out some numbers here really soon we're, we've been in our program our community program now for seven months and uh, we're really getting to the point of now starting to write and share some of those uh, great stories that we've had and but I got to tell you, for the first time in almost my 30 years, Mike, it feels like we're really helping the patient now rather than just continually bringing that person back to the ER for that Band-Aid. And then when that Band-Aid falls off, we're bringing them right back again. And it feels like we're really treating patients now. And, and you asked the question earlier about what's the future of paramedicine. I think the statement you made captures it as well or better than anything I've ever heard. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you very much for that. And everybody that's out there, go ahead and check out Mike's uh, blog. You could do that at MikeTegman.com, T-A-I-G-M-A-N.com. And Mike, uh, I appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to spend a few minutes with us and promise you'll come back again and uh, join us for some more insight. I'll, I'll always accept an invitation from you, Chris. Thank you, Mike. And for everybody out there, I want to thank you for joining us on Inside EMS. If you have any questions or comments, go ahead and email us at the show at ems1.com. And for Kelly Grayson, I'm Chris Savalero. What we're going to try to do next week is Kelly is going to be on location at the Massachusetts EMS Conference. So hopefully we'll have a live show out there. Until next week, I'm Chris Savalero for Kelly Grayson. Everyone have a great week.